Welcome to the Underclass Podcast with Austin Picard. I'm an independent researcher who can't stomach being lied to on a daily basis by the mainstream media while we live in a fracturing society launched into parallel realities, falling perfectly onto the two sides of the political spectrum. I remain in the underclass. This week, we're forced to acknowledge a dark, abhorrent phenomenon we should never be willing to accept. A bleak version of reality, leaving us with no other option than to expose the corrupt nature of the state. It's time to elicit profound contempt by unmasking the deliberate subterfuge intended to overwhelmingly convince the ever-gullible herd marching in lockstep of a hysterical witch-hunt narrative largely caused by an irrational moral panic. What happens if we've all been brainwashed and persuaded to dismiss something as consequential as esoteric occult practices and satanic ritual abuse? A world filled with people who would rather not know, intrinsically refusing to confront the existence of evil. Our story begins on July 24, 1988 when the San Jose Mercury News published an article with the title Army of the Night in regard to a daycare scandal at the Presidio Army base involving allegations of child sexual abuse. The article begins by describing that even before Joyce Tobin arrived at the daycare center on November 14, 1986, she suspected that something was wrong. Her neighbor, Karen Thomas, had just called to say that Joyce's three-year-old son had begged to go home with her when she picked up her own youngster at the Child Development Center that morning. Joyce's son had said he didn't want to stay for daycare after his preschool class ended. When Thomas said she couldn't take him with her, the Tobin boy turned to his preschool teacher and asked if he could stay with her. But she had no choice. Joyce Tobin was at the dentist across town and had arranged for her son to be taken from his preschool class at the Child Development Center, CDC, to hourly care until she could pick him up. Until the boy started preschool two months earlier, he had been left at the center once or twice a month for two years. It was only the second time he had been left in hourly care since September, both times while his mother had medical appointments. The preschool and hourly care programs were both run by the U.S. Army at the Presidio of San Francisco, a sprawling compound of -of turn-of-the-century wood and brick buildings, headquarters of the 6th Army, a place that motorists glimpsed through the pines on their way to the Golden Gate Bridge. On that day that changed her life and the lives of her family, Joyce Tobin arrived at the Presidio Daycare Center at 2.30 p.m. Her son, appeared to be napping with several other children, and the teacher, Gary Hambright, was sitting at a table in the room. When Joyce asked how her son had been that day, Hambright said, the boy had been upset and had not eaten his lunch. He called the child a darling little boy and suggested that she bring him to the daycare center every other day so that the boy could get used to him. A lot of three- and four-year-olds had trouble coming to his daycare room, Hembright told her. He suggested they were intimidated by the older children in the class. That night, while watching television with his older brother, the three-year-old 
started playing with his penis, pulling it forward with both hands and letting go. Mr. Gary do it, he said, and kept at it. His brother ran for their mother, who was talking to a neighbor in the front doorway, trying to keep her voice calm. Joyce asked her son what he was talking about. The child's reply was terse and grim. He touched my penis with his hand, and he bit my penis. The boy made a chomping sound with his mouth. Asked if Mr. Gary had done anything else, the boy said, He put a pencil in my hole, in my bottom. He do that, he do that to me. He hurt me, and I cry, and I cry. Joyce Tobin was unsure what to think. It seemed too impossible and horrible to be true, she said later. I also thought, how awful it would be to accuse someone of this if it were not true. She watched her young son hide his nails and turn his head away. He seemed nervous and upset. When her husband, Captain Mike Tobin, came home, the couple decided to observe their son over the weekend. They agreed they would not question him, but would wait to see if he said anything more. At bedtime, Joyce, who had trained as a nurse, examined the boy's anus. It seemed a little red. That night, the boy came to their bedroom, crying. He said he was scared. He said he wanted to sleep with them. During the next few days, what had seemed at first too impossible and horrible to be true would not go away. The boy continued to talk about Mr. Gary hurting him. The following Tuesday, on November 18th, Joyce Tobin was driving through the Presidio with the boy when they came to the intersection where she would have turned to go to the daycare center. He raised himself up out of his car seat as if he were attempting to get out and started to cry. Are you taking me to daycare? he asked. I don't want to go to daycare. Mr. Gary hurt me and I cry. Reassured that they were not going to the daycare center, the boy calmed down. The mother could not. The incident convinced her that she should contact the daycare center. On Wednesday, she called the director, Diana Curl, and asked for an appointment to discuss her son's allegation. Despite the seriousness of the complaint, Curl said she couldn't see Joyce until Friday, two days later. Within half an hour of the call, Joyce was called at home by one of her son's preschool teachers, wanting to know what the problem was. The daycare center staff had been told immediately about Joyce's call. Authorities did not search the center until Friday. Joyce Tobin never got to meet with Diana Curl. The case broke before then. On Thursday, Mike Tobin spoke with a chaplain of the Presidio who contacted the Army's Criminal Investigation Division. Officers from the CID made an appointment to interview and videotape the boy about his allegations. After the videotaped interview on the morning of November 21st, the Tobin son was examined at the Child Adolescent Sexual Abuse Referral Center, KSARC, at San Francisco General Hospital. KSARC reviews more than 700 cases of suspected sexual abuse every year. Among other things, the KSARC staff had often heard children describe anal rape as having a pencil put in their bottoms. When Dr. Kevin Coulter examined the Tobin's son, 
he observed that the child's anus dilated to approximately 20 millimeters in approximately 5 seconds, a much faster and wider dilation than normal. Coulter had conducted more than 300 examinations of children at KSARC. His conclusion was that such rapid and wide dilation was caused by trauma to the anus and rectum, consistent with penetration. A Tobin's three-year-old son had been sexually abused, anally raped. A flurry of meetings at the Presidio followed the revelation that the Tobin boy had been abused, but for all the activity, the Army seemed in no hurry to proceed with the case. It took the Army 12 days to form a strategy group, and it took the Army almost a month to notify the parents of other children who had been in Mr. Gary's class that the incident had taken place and that their children might be at risk. Nearly a year would pass before more than 59 other victims' children between the ages of 3 and 7 had been identified, and allegations would be made by parents that several more children were molested even after the investigation had begun. Daycare centers under state jurisdiction are routinely closed when an abuse incident is confirmed, but the Presidio Center stayed open for more than a year after the Tobin boy said Mr. Gary had hurt him. A strategy meeting on December 10th set the tone for the case. The meeting was attended by all the brass from the Presidio, representatives of the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office, and staff from the Child Adolescent Sexual Abuse Referral Center. KSARC workers told the Army to expect multiple victims, so many that KSARC could not offer its help. But the Army didn't want to believe that, says one KSARC worker who attended the meeting. Five days later, on December 15th, letters were mailed to 242 parents whose children were in Hambright's classes. The commander of the Presidio of San Francisco has been appraised of a single incident of alleged child sexual abuse reported to have occurred at the Presidio Child Development Center. We have no reason to believe that other children have been victimized. Many parents who received the letter took the Army at its word. Many of them didn't learn until the following April, after the Tobins and other parents forced the Army to send out another letter, that their children had been victims. Other parents found out right away. Their children had begun to talk, and they kept talking. That was the problem. They kept saying things that no one, especially not the Army, wanted to hear. They kept mentioning other people besides Mr. Gary, other locations besides the daycare center. Among the allegations, some of the children said they were taken from the daycare center to private homes on the Presidio where they were sexually abused. Two houses were singled out on the Army post and at least one home off post in San Francisco. One girl said she played poo-poo baseball at the home of one of her female teachers. The girl said the game involved throwing feces at the teacher. Other children talked about playing the goo-goo game with Mr. Gary. It involved Hambright having the children urinate and defecate on him. Then he would do the same to them. Sometimes the children said they were forced to drink urine and eat feces. Some said they had blood smeared on their bodies. Some children said they had guns pointed at them. Others said they were told that they or their parents would be killed if they told what happened. 
A three-year-old girl, said Mr. Gary, used special pins, black, blue, pink, and red, to doodle on her, starting at her legs and moving up over her genitals. The same child said she saw one of her friends at the center cry when Mr. Gary's friend, a woman, pointed a gun at the friend. There were five confirmed cases of chlamydia, a sexually transmitted disease, including two of the four daughters of one family. Despite the rumors and allegations, the Army, the FBI, and the U.S. Attorney's Office were united in wanting a simple pedophile case. The Army wanted the matter over with. The prosecutors wanted a case they would win. The more unusual the allegations they felt, the harder it would be to win in court. So on January 5th, 1987, Gary Willard Hambright was arrested. The indictment that Assistant U.S. Attorney Susan Gray had sought from the grand jury charged Hambright with molesting only one child. He was accused of sodomy, oral copulation, and committing a lewd and lascivious act on a child. In March, Three months after Hambright's arrest, the charges were dismissed. U.S. District Court Judge William Schwarzer refused to allow the admission of so-called hearsay statements, specifically the comments the Tobin boy made to his brother and mother and to the nurse and the doctor who examined him about the abuse. Several states allow exemptions to the hearsay rules in child abuse cases, but federal courts and California state courts do not. Schwarzer refused the hearsay evidence on March 4th and ruled that the Tobin boy would not qualify as a competent witness because of his age. On March 20th, the U.S. Attorney's Office asked that the charges be dismissed without prejudice, meaning they could be refiled if new evidence emerged. Prosecutor Gray told the judge she had 12 more children saying the same things as the Tobin boy. Gray had counted on the judges allowing the admission of statements the Tobin boy made to his brother on the day he first said Mr. Gary hurt him, as well as similar comments made to the nurse and doctor who examined him. The medical evidence and the perfect witness parents made her even more confident. Joyce Tobin was a nurse. Mike Tobin was a West Point graduate and a nuclear engineer. But the Army's investigation of the Tobin boy's allegations had gotten off to a shaky start when Army Criminal Investigative Special Agent Mark Remsen was assigned to interview the child. Remsen had never interviewed a child younger than eight years old, and while Army regulations required that the interview be taped, Remsen had never used videotape in an interview. The regulation was later changed, but the damage had been done. The videotape was to be singled out repeatedly as an example of how the children had been coached and prodded to tell their stories. Joyce Tobin, according to court records, said that during the interview, apparently in an attempt to establish rapport with my son, the CID investigator said that Mr. Gary was bad and should be spanked. He said this numerous times. Thereafter, in the week that followed when my son spoke about Mr. Gary, he described Mr. Gary as bad and said he should be spanked. Prior to the CID interview, my son had never said anything like that or attempted to make any value judgment about what had happened to him. He just reported what had happened to him, Joyce Tobin told the prosecution. 
With the charges dismissed, Ray's attempt at a simple pedophile case had failed. The court would not hear of the Presidio again until the end of September 1987. The Tobins were disappointed but not defeated. They had begun calling and writing congressmen, calling and meeting with army officials at the Presidio. By April, another battle had shaped up outside the courtroom. The army insisted that the daycare center was safe, that all of the victims had been identified. Parents feared otherwise because their children had mentioned people other than Hambright, people who still worked at the daycare center. At first, it was the Tobins alone who kept asking, was this done? Did you check on that? What about the other children? By April, the Tobins had been joined by the Runyons, the Adams-Thompsons, the Dorseys, the Foxes. Most had not met before. They were to meet many times in the months to come. Their first priority was to get another letter mailed to parents of other children who had attended the daycare center. The Army saw no need for that. Why are you doing this? Lieutenant Colonel Walter Meyer, the Director of Personnel and Community Activities, asked Mike Tobin. Because parents need to know what's happening, Tobin told him. The letter was delayed for two weeks while Meyer argued over whether the number of victims mentioned in the letter should be 32 or 37. When Joyce Tobin and Brenda Fox went to his office to discuss the letter, Meyer said he didn't have time to talk. Fox recalls that he was on his way to make a videotape about the CDC, about it being a model daycare center. He said, despite what you may believe, this is a model daycare center. I sat there thinking, this man has no soul, she says. We told him the numbers were wrong. He said, no, they're not. We waited while he called and found out the numbers were wrong. Under the signatures of Joyce and Mike Tobin, Gretchen and Dennis Runyon, Sue and Tom Dorsey, Michelle and Larry Adams Thompson, and Brenda and Don Fox, the letter, dated April 29, 1987, was mailed to parents. We feel you should know there are now 37 children identified by the authorities as suspected victims, the letter said in part. We are very concerned that there may be more children affected and in need of help, yet remain unidentified. The core group of parents consisted of professional people, doctors, a dentist, a nuclear scientist. They spoke out loud and often. They said they spoke for those who could not, the children and the enlisted people who they said were too afraid to risk their military career to speak out. The enlisted people needed their jobs and the daycare. The core group could afford daycare elsewhere. When it first started, they had the chance to be heroes, parent Melanie Thompson said about the army. Instead, they just didn't want to believe it. Now they're just trying to cover it up like a bad dream. Parents would also learn that there had been sex abuse cases involving daycare centers at several other army bases. West Point was one of the most serious until the Presidio. In July 1984, a three-year-old girl was brought to the emergency room at West Point Hospital with a lacerated vagina. The child told the doctor who examined her that a teacher at the West Point daycare center was the one who hurt her. In August, another parent came forward. By the end of the year, 50 children had been interviewed by investigators. 
children at West Point told stories that would become horrifyingly familiar. They said they had been ritually abused. They said they had had excrement smeared on their bodies and been forced to eat feces and drink urine. They said they were taken away from the daycare center and photographed. Some parents alleged that the army tried to cover up the cases. The whole underlying theme was that the image of West Point was more important than dealing with the reality of what happened, said Dr. Walter Grote, whose two-year-old daughter was among the children allegedly abused at the center. Although the allegations of ritual abuse made by children at West Point and at the Presidio were similar, we may never totally resolve whether there is any kind of external organization of abusers or if just a single pedophile was involved in those cases, said Colonel Jim Schley, Deputy Director of the Military Family Resource Center. But some of the allegations made by children at the Presidio, that they were taken to houses on and off post by men and women, led to investigation of the possibility that there was an external organization in San Francisco. Inside a concrete bunker behind the military intelligence building at the Presidio, the words, Prince of Darkness, are painted boldly in red on one wall. Used decades ago to house artillery guns, the reinforced concrete batteries appear to have been converted to something like ritual chambers. Emblazoned next to the Prince of Darkness is the word die, and what looks like a list of names painted in red that have been crossed out with a heavy black paint. One wall is covered with the numerals 666, a sign of the devil and occult drawings. A clearing in the center of the concrete floor where the ground is exposed is filled with refuse and partly burned logs. On the front wall beneath the window that faces the military intelligence building is a huge pentagram inside a circle. In the rear, where sunlight gives way to darkness, white and black candle drippings sit atop a dome-shaped recession in the wall, apparently a crude altar. Incense sticks lie half-burned to the side. At another battery farther up Lincoln Boulevard, a large drawing of Satan with red eyes and horns appears on an outside concrete wall. Doors to the battery are secured shut. There are no windows to climb through. No entry is possible here. It would be easy to dismiss the satanic graffiti as the pranks of adolescence, taking advantage of the isolated bunkers to play new versions of Dungeons and Dragons. But events in the Presidio case suggested something more sinister could have been involved. Satanic goings-on are not new to the Presidio. In the early 1980s, when he was an MP at the Presidio, Albanoski recalls, We got a call from the Portola MacArthur housing area. One person reported a man dressed in black holding a little girl's hand running toward the park. Another call came in saying they heard screams near the creek. The search led to a gardener's shack at Julius Kahn Park, a strip of city-owned playground adjacent to the Presidio, behind the housing area. We heard noises coming from inside, Albanoski recalls. We kicked the door open, and here's this nice little bedroom. In a corner was a mannequin with a gun aimed at the door. On the left side, 
There was a bunk against the wall. There was a pentagram on the floor, a huge one. There were dolls' heads all over the ceiling, just off-the-wall stuff. Music was blaring from a radio. Albanoski and another MP were given approval to set up surveillance of the shack. After a while, the investigation was called off. We were sitting there. We've got a cult on the Presidio of San Francisco, and nobody cares about it, Albanoski says. We were told by the provost marshal to just forget about it. Though Albanoski's investigation went nowhere, the child abuse cases would raise the specter of Satanism again. Larry and Michelle Adams Thompson had noticed changes in their daughter's behavior after placing her in Gary Hambright's class four or five times in September and October of 1986. The girl, who turned three in October, had begun having nightmares and would wet herself when frightened. Her parents believed it was just a bad stage she was going through until they heard about the Tobin boy in January. The girl was taken to a therapist at Letterman Army Medical Center in February. In therapy, the girl talked about being sexually abused by Hambright and by a man named Mikey and a woman named Shamby, whose identities were unknown. On August 12, 1987, the Adams Thompsons were shopping at the PX at the Presidio. Suddenly, the girl ran to Larry Adams Thompson and clutched his leg. He looked up and saw a man whom he knew as Lieutenant Colonel Michael Aquino. Yes, that's Mikey, the three-year-old told Adams Thompson. After being taken outside, the girl added, He's a bad man, and I'm afraid. As they were leaving the parking lot, Adams Thompson saw Aquino's wife, Lilith. Larry asked the child if she knew the woman. Yes, that's Shamby, the girl said. The family went home and called the FBI. When interviewed by authorities the next day, the girl identified Gary Hambright from a photo lineup and said she had been driven to Mikey and Shamby's home by Hambright. There, she said, she was abused by Hambright, Mikey, and Shamby in a room with black walls. She said that she had been photographed. She said Hambright and Mikey were dressed in women's clothes, and Shamby was dressed in man's clothes. The investigators drove her to Leavenworth Street in San Francisco. The girl was asked to identify any of the houses that she had been to before. While walking past 2430 Leavenworth, the girl identified the house as the one where she met Mikey and Shamby. It was the Aquino's house. A search warrant was served on the Aquino home on August 14th. In attendance were agents from the FBI and the San Francisco police. Because the abuse allegedly occurred on city property, it was to be a city case. Among the items seized were videotapes, cassette tapes, notebooks with names and addresses, two photo albums, one paper plate, and two plastic gloves from the kitchen garbage, four plastic cases of negatives, and 29 photos of costumes and masks. With his widow's peak and arching eyebrows, Lieutenant Colonel Michael Aquino looks more like a pudgy Dracula than a high-ranking army officer with top security clearance. He is the founder and high priest of a satanic church, the Temple of Set. His wife, Lilith, 
a gaunt woman with long, dark hair, is a priestess in the temple's order of the vampire. The couple referred to the search as a raid and branded the investigation a witch hunt. The army did not suspend his clearance when he joined the Church of Satan, founded by Anton LaVey in 1969, nor when Aquino founded his own satanic church in 1975, nor when Aquino, while on a NATO tour of Europe in 1982, performed a satanic ritual in the Westphalian castle that had been used as an occult sanctuary for Heinrich Himmler's SS elite in Nazi Germany. Nor did the army move to suspend Aquino's top security clearance during the sex abuse investigation. According to the official narrative, Michael Aquino was born in 1946, later becoming a military intelligence officer specializing in psychological warfare. When he established the Temple of Set in 1975, he was dissatisfied with the direction in which Anton LaVey was taking the Church of Satan. He personally claimed after he resigned from the church that he embarked on a ritual to invoke Satan, who revealed to him a sacred text called the Book of Coming Forth by Night. According to Aquino, in this work, Satan revealed his true name to be that of Set, which had been the name used by his followers in ancient Egypt. Aquino was joined in establishing the temple by a number of other dissatisfied members of LaVey's church, and soon various Setian groups were established across the United States. Setians believe that Set is the one real God, and that he has aided humanity by giving them a questioning intellect, black flame, which distinguishes them from other animal species. Set is held in high esteem as a teacher whose example is to be emulated, but he is not worshipped as a deity. Highly individualistic in basis, the temple promotes the idea that practitioners should seek self-deification and thus attain an immortality of consciousness. Setians believe in the existence of magic as a force which can be manipulated through ritual. However, the nature of these rituals is not prescribed by the temple. Specifically, Aquino described Setian practices as black magic a term which he defines idiosyncratically. Paul Bonacci is regarded by many as an MKUltra Project Monarch mind control victim who was involved in the Franklin scandal and the abduction of Johnny Gosh. And in May 1998, investigative researcher Dave McGowan explained that one of the names raised at the Paul Bonacci trial was that of Michael Aquino. Monarch is an operation that was created by the United States government to create spies for other countries. They use children for the purpose that they are easily integrated into multiple personalities because they can dissociate. Monarch is a program that is run by Michael Angelo Aquino, who was an Army Reserve Colonel at Presidio. He is also the leader of the Temple of Set. He is also, he also runs a child daycare center. He also is involved in human sacrifice. Is he employed by the United States? Yes. At what facility? Presidio, California. Is that in San Francisco area? Presidio's yes. Naval Base? Yes. 
you know what rank Michael Aquino holds? He was a colonel. Is he currently employed there? I am not aware of the current situation. Now, describe the program again, the Monarch program. Monarch, as I said, was a program that used children to make multiple personalities for future use as spies and as a way to take over the United States government. The personalities were created at the first... Who, excuse me, who was intending to take over the United States government? I do not know that information. Did you understand Mr. Aquino to be working on behalf of the United States or against the United States? I believe he was working on behalf of the United States. So some segment of the United States was trying to take over the United States government? The plan that Aquino had in it was he wanted to usher in the Antichrist which is talked about in the Bible. He yeah. This was a government-sponsored program? Yes. Okay. You were seven years old at the time that you were recruited? I was actually three years old when it first began, but I was not created until later on. Who created you? I was created by... Monarch. Do you mean Mr. Aquino? Who in Monarch created you? I was created by Monarch. I do not know who. Aquino was accused in court by the mother of a victim as being a key player in a nationwide pedophile ring. Paul Bonacci himself has also positively identified Aquino as an associate of Lawrence E. King, known to the children only as the Colonel. King's personal blackmail photographer, Rusty Nelson, has identified Aquino as the man to whom he saw King hand over a suitcase of cash and bonds. Blackmail photographer Rusty Nelson also has said that King told him that Aquino was part of the Contra guns and cocaine trafficking operation run by George Bush and another notorious Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North. Aquino has also been linked to Afut Air Force Base, a strategic air command post near Omaha that was implicated in the investigation by the Franklin Committee. He was also claimed to have ordered the abduction of Des Moines, Iowa paperboy named Johnny Gosh. As a final note on the Presidio case, a report in the Marin Independent Journal revealed that Aquino owned a building in Marin County inherited from his mother, Betty Ford Aquino, that had been jointly leased to the Marin County Child Abuse Council and Project Care for Children. The stated purpose of Project Care was, interestingly enough, to assist parents in locating daycare for their children. As disturbing as the Presidio case was, it was just one of many ritual abuse cases directly tied to one or more branches of the United States Armed Forces. As the Mercury News reported, by November 1987, the Army had received allegations of child abuse at 15 of its daycare centers and several elementary schools. 
another case conveniently dismissed during this time as a part of an alleged witch hunt narrative, eagerly covered up by the authorities and quickly labeled as more daycare sex abuse hysteria sweeping the nation during the irrational satanic panic, is the case of the McMartin Preschool. Brown professor Ross E. Chait, himself a victim of child sexual abuse, spent around 18 years composing a book he would title The Witch Hunt Narrative, wherein he compiled some of the most compelling evidence through close examination of court records, exposing the reality that child sexual abuse did in fact occur in many of these cases, including McMartin. In the book, he introduces the case by explaining that from initial arrest to final disposition of all charges, the case took more than seven years. There was an 18-month-long preliminary hearing, and the trial itself lasted more than two years. The case received enormous media attention and became the subject of several books and a made-for-TV movie. It is featured on the famous trials website of law professor Douglas Linder and the Crime Library website originally created by Court TV. In its early stages, the McMartin Preschool case was described as the largest child molestation case on record, with multiple perpetrators and hundreds of likely victims. After the case ended without any convictions, it became widely viewed as a witch hunt. The case began in August 1983, when a mother named Judy Johnson contacted her son's pediatrician because she thought that the boy, Matthew, had been anally penetrated by Mr. Ray at the McMartin Preschool. The name Mr. Ray came from her son. Mrs. Johnson did not know Raymond Bucky. Her son had been attending the preschool since June. The investigation that followed eventually included videotaped interviews with hundreds of children who had attended the preschool in the previous decade. Those interviews were conducted almost entirely by a nonprofit agency called Children's Institute International, or CII. On February 2, 1984, a local television station broadcast the detailed story about allegations that were emerging from the supposedly confidential interviews at CII. Although the investigation had been going on for months, there had been no stories in the media. The story immediately became national news even though nobody had yet been indicted and the grand jury had not been convened. The interviewers at CII had apparently come to believe that most of the children they had interviewed between November 1983 and January 1984 had been sexually abused by various teachers at the preschool in Manhattan Beach, California. The exclusive story on KABC-TV reported that 60 children had already been identified as victims. The CII interviews became the primary basis for the criminal charges in the case. They later became the primary focus of the defense. The case was taken to the grand jury in March 1984. The grand jury indicted seven defendants for sex crimes against children. The primary defendant was Raymond Bucky, the only male who worked at the preschool. Three other members of his family, who also worked at the preschool, were also indicted. His sister, Peggy Ann Bucky, his mother, Peggy Bucky, and his grandmother, Virginia McMartin. 
three other teachers at the preschool were also indicted, Betty Rader, Babette Spittler, and Mary Ann Jackson. Charges would eventually be dropped against five of the seven defendants, with only Ray and Peggy Bucky going to trial. But in 1985, when the case had seven defendants, it was widely held that there were many more defendants yet to be identified. The County Sheriff's McMartin Task Force was formed to investigate the case further. At one point, there were more than 50 additional suspects in the case and allegations that children had been taken to a host of locations beyond the preschool, but no further charges were ever brought. At its height, there were 41 actual complainants in the McMartin case. Fourteen of those children later participated in the preliminary hearing. The rest of the complainants dropped out of the case for various reasons. Some parents decided to pull their children from the increasingly long and highly publicized ordeal, and the DA made the decision to drop other complainants. Preliminary hearing lasted 18 months, far longer than almost all criminal trials in the country. At the conclusion of the hearing, Municipal Court Judge Aviva Bob ruled there was sufficient evidence to hold all seven of the defendants over for trial. The evidentiary standard required to reach that judgment was low, and the preliminary hearing exposed serious problems with the prosecution's case. Ira Reiner, a Los Angeles district attorney who inherited the McMartin case when he defeated Robert Filibosian in June 1984, criticized the way in which the case had been investigated and charged. Shortly after Judge Bob's decision to hold all seven defendants over for trial, Reiner dropped all charges against five of them, famously describing the evidence against them as incredibly weak. Only Ray Bucky and his mother Peggy Bucky would actually go to trial. The case would involve 11 children. The trial was preceded by a significant sideshow involving a series of tape-recorded interviews between Glenn Stevens, a disaffected prosecutor who quit his job over the case, and Abby Mann, a screenwriter who was developing movie and book ideas that cast the entire case as a witch hunt. Stevens was one of the three assistant DAs who were assigned the McMartin case during its most critical stages in the spring of 1984. He left the DA's office in January 1986 after coming to the conclusion that most, but not all, of the defendants in the case were innocent. Stevens entered into an agreement to help Abby and Myra Mann, his wife, write a movie script about the case. Some of the material that he provided to them, including comments made during the tape-recorded conversations, eventually became the focus of a lengthy pretrial hearing over a motion to dismiss the case. That hearing occasioned a rare window into what Stevens actually said about the evidence in office memoranda written in late 1985 and early 1986. Contrary to how events were later portrayed in the movie Indictment, Stevens wrote that he found the evidence against Ray Bucky to be quite strong. But he also concluded that the children's statements about all of the other defendants, including Peggy Bucky, were unconvincing. Charges against five of the female defendants were dropped long before this hearing, but the case went ahead against Ray Bucky and Peggy Bucky. The motion to dismiss the charges against them, based on tape-recorded conversations between Stevens and the Manns, was rejected, and Ray Bucky and his mother were then tried for child molestation. 
The trial lasted almost two years, and it ended inconclusively. The defendants were found not guilty on most charges, while others, almost entirely against Ray, resulted in a hung jury. The jury also could not reach a verdict on a conspiracy charge against Peggy, but the judge dismissed that charge. The unresolved charges against Ray involved three girls. Those charges were retried in an abbreviated trial that began in April 1990 and lasted less than three months. It ended with a hung jury on all counts. A mistrial was then declared and all remaining charges against Ray Bucky were dismissed, rendering the case a colossal failure by any measure. The case was filled with strange twists. The lead defense attorney, Danny Davis, became a witness in the case. The defense filed a motion to disqualify the Los Angeles District Attorney's Office. Both sides in the case were sanctioned over various behaviors. Most dramatically, several key actors in the case died an untimely death. Judy Johnson, mother of the initial child in the case, apparently died from alcoholism, and two others with connections to the case allegedly took their own lives. An unsolved 1976 murder case was even linked to McMartin at one point. As we fall further and further down the proverbial rabbit hole, we discover an alternative version of events, lending credibility to the victim's stories, implicating a cover-up, subsequently casting doubt on this preordained outcome. As investigative journalist Alex Constantine wrote in 1996, Welcome to Manhattan Beach. I remember being tied up to a pole with this girl named Emily. There was an explosion of daycare sex abuse scandals, like the Kelly Michaels case, in the last decade. I remember um, playing the naked lady game. The most notorious, perhaps the one that ignited them all, happened at the McMartin Preschool in Manhattan Beach, California. Someone killed a horse in yeah. front of you? Yeah. Where? Um, that was at a farm. That was part of getting part of the scare tactics. You know, this could happen to your mom and dad if you tell about anything that's happened. And who killed the horse? Um, Ray, Bucky. It began 10 years ago with a single accusation of child abuse against one teacher, Raymond Bucky. I have a daughter who has massive evidence of being raped and being sodomized. But it quickly grew. More than 100 counts of trial with 208 counts of Until there were seven defendants. More than 300 charges. And hundreds of charges. I think uh, adults have had a lot of influence on these children. Raymond Bucky, his sister Peggy Ann. Hi. Their mother, Peggy McMartin Bucky, grandmother Virginia McMartin, and three teachers were all charged with sexually abusing 18 children at the McMartin Preschool. It was, it was a prestigious school in the area. It had a waiting list. And Kevin Cody, publisher of a local newspaper. Virginia McMartin was the Manhattan Beach Woman of the Year two or three years prior to the investigations. Witness the wave of sex abuse charges that washed over the entire beach community. Do you know altogether, including McMartin, how many schools in this area closed because of allegations of, of child abuse? Seven. And was anyone ever convicted? No. All right, we are ready for the jury. Raymond Bucky and his mother Peggy were the only McMartin defendants to stand trial. As to counts three, on January 18, 1990, eight, count nine, 
Count 12. After 124 witnesses, 1,000 pieces of evidence, count 56, count 57, and $15 million of taxpayers' money, the longest and most expensive criminal trial in U.S. history came to an end. We, the jury, in the above entitled action, find the very defendants not guilty. This is all that's left of the McMartin Preschool. It was torn down in 1990. The children, the three, four, and five-year-olds who said they were molested, are teenagers now. The defendant, Ray Bucky and his family, lost their home and moved to a town just south of here. It's all over, and yet it's not. Are you still angry? Yeah, I'm still angry. I don't make that a part of my life, you know, to, to, to dwell on that and say, you know, my God, I gotta... I gotta somehow get my revenge, but I'm angry, you know, very angry. It shouldn't go on. That, that kind of stuff should not go on. It shouldn't happen. I want people to know that it did go on and that it still does and that it probably still will go on. Brian Stafford was one of the star witnesses against Ray Bucky. It mattered to me, of course, what the jury said, but I knew in my heart that no matter what they said, I knew my story and I knew the truth. At one point, and he spent 16 days on the witness stand. I had really expected a guilty verdict and I was, I was pretty upset, yeah. I think we all are. Probably the, the most, um, not horrifying, but most uh, vivid anger that I have is these, these older people taking advantage sexually of small kids. It really, it's strange, it's upsetting, and it's just, it really, that really got on my nerves. I just, I, I had a hard time dealing with that. Seeing it happen to someone else? See, having it happen to, to me, having them, you know, take advantage of me sexually as a small child, it really just kind of um, shocked me, but I knew it happened. She looks so little. She's so little, and I don't know how anybody could hurt such a little kid. Mary Mae Chiaffi's daughter, Elizabeth, was three when she attended the McMartin Preschool. She's 13 now. What's the Naked Lady Gang? Um, I don't really remember what we did. I just remember that that's what it was called, and that we would all be naked, and the girls and boys would stand in lines, and they'd take pictures of us while we were on stage. And I remember tunnels. There were, um, they were kind of like a subway tunnel, but it was a long, like a circular tunnel. And there were lamps, like the oil lamps, um, every so often. And it was a dark tunnel, but, and there were pictures of the devil on the wall. And the tunnel went right on across, all the way over to this wall. The kids talked about passageways under the school and rooms under the school. Jackie McGauley says her daughter was also abused at McMartin and also mentioned tunnels. The tunnel went in like this. Ten years later, she and a private investigator are still digging for proof. We were probing all over the school trying to find uh, some evidence of tunnels and it was like finding a needle in a haystack really. In 1985, the district attorney looked for tunnels at the site but found no sign of them. And why do you think that you were able to find something that the prosecutors couldn't find? And the tunnels were actually under the school building. The prosecutors came in about two or three days and lifted tile, and they didn't see any, any indication that there was any break in the floor, and that's all they did. This was the wall, the west wall. After the acquittals, Ted Gunderson helped Jackie McGauley the back hole went straight down about lead an excavation at the McMartin site. They say the dig revealed the tunnels once existed under the school. Three was about uh, almost a 50-foot tunnel. When you found these tunnels, they weren't actual tunnels. They weren't intact at the time. They've been filled. How were they filled? 
We never could figure out how they were filled, but I know it was done very professionally. There's artificial fill here. It's foreign to the other soil that's in the, the native soil that's in this area. And what do you think that tunnel was used for? Well, the children said that they were taken down into the tunnel and brought up into this triplex next door, and then they were placed in cars and taken out into the communities uh, and prostituted. Does that seem possible to you? I would say it's possible. We found the tunnels. At the McGauley home, more reminders of the McMartin nightmare. Where did these come from? Play yard. These were toys that were actually in the play yard? Mm -hmm. Is that hard, though, for your daughter to see parts of that school in her own backyard? Well, she lived on the school pretty much for a month while we were doing the project. So, like I said before, I think we worked through all of that. We, 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 we had to sleep school. down there at night with the kids. This is the sign from the school? Where is that now? We've got it in storage. What's the significance of holding on to all of this? A lot of kids were called liars. A lot of kids don't feel that they can hold their heads up. They don't feel like they can talk about what happened and deal with their problems. There's a lot of problems associated with, ha with what happened at the school. I don't care about the trial. I don't care about the defendants. I do care about the kids. What good does this do, though? <laughs> to hold on to the sign, what good does it do to hold on to the sign? It's just there. I'm not really holding on to it. Just as there are families with strong feelings about the McMartin case, there are those with serious doubts. There is no case. The case should never have gone to trial. Newspaperman Cody covered the McMartin trial and says the real culprits in the case were the social workers that investigated the early McMartin complaints. To my opinion, the therapist led the kids into making these false disclosures. Do you think those kids were abused? There is no evidence presented to my mind that the kids were abused. I mean, I don't know how many times over the years I've thought, well, maybe they really did. Maybe they did brainwash our kids, and this is all just a bunch of baloney, and we'll just wake up from this bad dream. But the reality, I don't think that's the reality. Is there any question in your mind it happened? No, I know what happened. Is it possible at all, when you look back now, that some of these memories you have are memories that the therapist told you about, that may not be your own memories? For me, no, there's no doubt. Um, People will try and convince you that, hey, this didn't happen to you. Look, look at, look at this. They told you that. It's simply not the truth. And it's, you know, the topic gets old. It, that's what happened, and that's what I said. And you believe me or not, it's fine. But I'm going to still say it to this day. Paul Bynum graduated from college in 1972 and joined the Hermosa Beach Police Department a year later. At 31. He was promoted to the rank of chief detective. Bynum was not a traditional investigator. One fellow detective often thought he was too bright to be a cop. Off-duty, he drove an MG and mixed with the 60s survivors at the Sweetwater Cafe. In 1976, Bynum was assigned the investigation of the Karen Class murder. Class was the divorced wife of Bill Medley, a vocalist for the Righteous Brothers. She was raped and murdered one morning about an hour after dropping her five-year-old son off at the McMartin Preschool in Manhattan Beach. Neighbors told police they'd been alarmed at the sight of a menacing stranger before the murder, wandering through the neighborhood. Police later entertained speculation that Class had been stalked. Throughout the week her body was found, this same stranger had popped up several times on her corner. A neighbor phoned Karen to warn her. 
He didn't answer. When friends entered the back door of the house, concerned for her safety, I found a Caucasian male with a beard, about 5'7", 28 years old, dressed in a long olive green coat with a tunic collar and boots. He was leaving through the front door. Class was found naked and unconscious. She died five days later. Nothing was stolen. Police had no indication that Class knew the man who assaulted her. In 1984, shortly after indictments were handed to defendants in the McMartin child molestation case, Gerald Class, her husband, drove off a cliff in Oregon and was killed. Children alleged in a grand jury hearing that teachers at the preschool had threatened to kill family members if they talked about abuse. It was rumored around town that the Class deaths and the McMartin case may have been related. But police said no. We have no leads, no suspects, and we're not coordinating with Manhattan Beach, Hermosa Beach Lieutenant Mike Lavin told reporters. In 1979, Paul Bynum was forced out of the police department without an explanation, despite an unblemished record. After Bynum had wrapped up an investigation of a series of murders of teenage girls in nearby Redondo Beach, culminating in the arrest and conviction of serial killers Roy Norris and Lawrence Bittaker, Police Chief Frank Beeson pressured Bynum to take a stress leave. Bynum was haunted by the serial murder investigation, but remained confident in his emotional stability. He refused the leave. The chief obtained an order from the city manager, and Bynum was forced out on an indefinite disability leave. He chalked it up to internal politics. Paranoia. When the papers reported that Beeson had shown up apparently drunk at his first Hermosa council meeting and dropped his revolver on the floor, Bynum told reporter Kevin Cody he thought we had tipped reporters. Beeson was unaware that reporters routinely attended meetings of the city council. Bynum set out on a new career as a private investigator. In March 1984, he was retained by the Bucky's defense attorney, Danny Davis, and in the course of his investigation, came to the conclusion that children had been abused at the preschool. He found the videotaped interviews of the children by child therapists credible. One afternoon, Cody informed Bynum that hundreds of children had alleged molestation took place at the preschool. Bynum was shocked. He stammered, he had no idea so many children were involved. In 1986, he was called to testify at the trial of Ray Bucky by prosecutor Lael Rubin. The morning he was to appear, a juror's home was burglarized and Bynum's testimony was rescheduled for the next morning. Neither side is going to like what I have to say, he told Cody. For one thing, there was the matter of Bynum's lost citation books records he'd kept while a detective in Hermosa Beach. When the police arrested Ray Bucky on molestation charges, the lost books were discovered on the preschool attendant's desk. What were official police records doing in Bucky's home? And Prosecutor Rubin had intended to ask Bynum about a map turned up by DA investigators in March 1986 pinpointing the location of turtle shells Bynum had unearthed at the lot next to the McMartin Preschool. The children claimed 
Teachers had killed turtles to demonstrate what would happen to them and their families if they talked about the molestations. Bynum, while retained by the defense, had managed to corroborate a key point in the testimony of the children. Bynum's court appearance was preempted by suicide, although the timing left some parents in the case convinced he'd been murdered. His body was discovered by his wife at 5.45 in the morning. He died of a headshot from a 38 caliber pistol. None of the half-dozen people questioned who were close to Bynum could think of any reason why his involvement in the case might have driven him to suicide, reported the Easy Reader in Manhattan Beach. Paul was kind of a worrier, said Stephen Kay, a deputy district attorney and friend of the Bynum family. But there was no hint of suicide. He was very upbeat about his wife and new daughter, both of whom he adored. The belief that Bynum had been murdered was fueled by the memory of another odd death. The alcohol toxicity that claimed the life of Judy Johnson. She was the first mother to speak publicly about child molestation at McMartin, and sympathizers at the Buckies in the press have gone to great lengths to portray Johnson as crazy, even claiming she was diagnosed with and hospitalized for acute paranoid schizophrenia, although this was never proven to be true. As her life was inverted the day her son came home from the McMartin school, bleeding. Strangers entered her life, intimidated her. She believed she'd been poisoned. In 1992, therapists at the LA Commission for Women's Ritual Abuse Task Force were also poisoned and corroborated their allegations with medical reports. The Los Angeles Times was given the reports but ignored them and alleged the therapists were paranoid fantasists. She lived in fear felt it necessary to keep a gun in the house. Her estranged husband appeared to have joined in the harassment campaign. She took to alcohol. Just before she could testify in the preliminary hearing, she was found dead in her home, allegedly due to alcohol poisoning. The death of Judy Johnson was met with howls of laughter in greater Los Angeles. She will be remembered as the delusional paranoiac who set in motion a wave of hysteria carried through Southern California by a sensational press and out across the plains, contaminating lives and decimating families everywhere. A groundless witch hunt. This was the explanation doled out by experts from leading universities. Nevertheless, children who attended the preschool still insist they were abused. In the detailed memories of their parents, are sharply at odds with the simple character of the case repeated endlessly in the press. They recall not suggestive questioning, but the long hours of testimony by dozens of children, the telephone death threats, how some of the children suffered deep emotional problems requiring hospitalization, knowing child pornography to be a highly lucrative business, they frown at the snickering over the children's disclosures that they were forced to play naked movie star games. They haven't put aside as anomalous accident the first exhibit in the case, a physician's report that one of the children suffered blunt force trauma of sexual areas. Parents were left to ponder why some of the toddlers in the care of the McMartins had chlamydia, a sexually transmitted infection.
Where was the humor in all of this? The parents wondered, like everyone else, at the incredibility of the charges. Some said the children were lying, but they had to question Peggy McMartin's testimony that she only worked at the school for a short time when payroll records showed that she had been employed there for years. To the families, the final verdict of Ray Bucky meant it was now open season on children. The world was told redundantly that ABC's Wayne Satz, the reporter who broke the case, killed by a heart attack in December 1992 at age 47, and T. McFarlane, a therapist testifying for the prosecution, had an affair, as if this had any bearing on the allegations of the children. Even Oliver Stone, perhaps in ignorance, took to the bandwagon with a film made for HBO, written by Abby Mann, theorizing that hysteria in Manhattan Beach was kindled when one child returned home from school one afternoon with a red bottom. This would be the son of Judy Johnson, and he hadn't been spanked. He was bleeding from the anus. This hardly constitutes media spin. It is conscious participation in a felony. The account of the case, hounded into collective memory by media repetition, goes that far to distort the facts. The widespread media coverage was, according to Los Angeles Times editor Noel Greenwood, a mean-spirited campaign organized to discredit the children and their therapists. But why should certain members of the corporate press and segments of the legal and psychiatric professions go to such lengths to suppress evidence of organized child abuse at McMartin? The traumatic crimes reported by the toddlers bear an uncanny resemblance to mind-controlled programming, a specialty of certain classified federal agencies and cult cutouts on the black budget payroll. The children are often ridiculed because some of their charges are impossible. Tunnels under the preschool? Too ludicrous to consider. But as it happens, there were tunnels, confirmed in 1993 by a team of five scientists from leading universities. The unearthing of the tunnels, like much of the critical evidence, never made it to the courtroom. They have been discreetly excluded from newspaper accounts. Ritual abuse skeptics with CIA connections are covering up the latest phase in agency-sponsored mind control experimentation. For 30 years, agency scientists have collaborated with cults many of them founded by the government to conceal the development of mind control technology. Jim Jones and the People's Temple was one product of the Alliance. McMartin was another. Both episodes have been buried in disinformation. The campaign to mislead the public about ritual abuse is ambitious, rivaling the campaign to conceal the facts in the murder of John F. Kennedy. The smokescreen is also explained in part by reports implicating the CIA and child prostitution for the purposes of political blackmail, a variation on the age-old sex trap. CIA agents have been directly involved in organized child sex rings. In Enslaved, 1991, an investigation of the worldwide slavery underground, Gordon Thomas, found agency participation in the kidnap of Latin American children, 
flown across the border in light aircraft and sold to child sex rings, or sold so their organs could be used in transplants. Some of the pilots, Thomas discovered, made two or three flights a day. The more experienced used Beach 18s because of the aircraft's capacity and maneuverability. The majority of the flyers were mercenaries who had flown for the CIA. Ray Bucky's father, Charles, worked for Hughes Aircraft. There is an old adage that holds, Hughes is the CIA. Charles Bucky built the McMartin Preschool. According to carbon dating readings, tunnels unearthed beneath the preschool were dug in 1968, the year the school was built. Bucky Sr. testified on the stand that there were no tunnels. The media has been completely silent on this score. The final chapter in our McMartin investigation provides a disturbing correlation, emphasizing the cross-section linking cases such as McMartin to that of the Presidio child sex abuse scandal. It's time we acknowledge the uncomfortable reality of a powerful cabal directly responsible for systemic child sexual abuse and its cover-up. In August of 2001, a series of articles were published at the Center for an Informed America. If there is anyone who can relate to the sentiments expressed by the Presidio and West Point parents, it is the mothers and fathers of the children who attended the infamous McMartin Preschool. The McMartin case was, of course, the largest and most well-publicized of the multi-victim, multi-perpetrator ritual abuse cases that captured headlines in the 1980s. It was also a case that was grotesquely misrepresented by the media, both mainstream and alternative. Perhaps nowhere more so than in the appalling writings of Nation columnist Alexander Cockburn, who went so far as to write an op-ed piece entitled The McMartin Case, Indict the Children, Jail the Parents, which ran in the Wall Street Journal on February 8, 1990. Virtually everyone agrees that the children of McMartin were victimized. There is considerable debate, of course, over whether that victimization was by abusive caretakers or by overzealous therapists and prosecutors. Either way, Cockburn's stance on the case was unconscionable and should have sent a clear signal to the progressive community that there was considerably more to the McMartin allegations than met the eye. The harsh reality that the McMartin Preschool, in conjunction with at least two other Manhattan Beach preschools and one babysitting service, was the center of a very large child prostitution and child pornography ring whose operations appeared to have been protected and covered up by any number of local, state, and federal officials. A glimpse of the true nature and scale of the McMartin case is offered by an official correspondence from Sergeant Beth Dickerson of the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department to Agent Kenneth Lanning at the FBI Academy's Behavioral Sciences Unit in Quantico, Virginia, dated February 10, 1985. In August 1983, the Manhattan Beach Police Department began an investigation regarding allegations of sexual abuse occurring at the McMartin Preschool. Altogether, Approximately 400 children were evaluated by therapists at Children's Institute International. 
All interviews were videotaped and 350 children disclosed sexual behavior. In all, the victims named seven teachers, six women and one male at the preschool, as having molested them. These individuals are currently charged with 209 counts of child molestation. Also named are about 30 other individuals still uncharged, as well as numerous unidentified strangers. McMartin victims alleged sexual abuse occurred on school grounds, as well as at a local market, churches, a mortuary, various homes, farm, doctor's office, other preschools, and other unknown locations. Most children state they were photographed in the nude. They mentioned drinking a red or pink liquid that made them sleepy. Children disclose animal sacrificing bunnies, ponies, turtles, etc., and some of this occurred in churches. Victims describe sticks put in their vaginas and rectums and also being pooped and peed on. Children say that the adults sometimes dressed in black robes, formed a circle around them, and chanted. In May 1984, another preschool investigation began in the same policing jurisdiction, stemming from a McMartin victim who identified the Manhattan Ranch Preschool as a place where he was taken and molested. Additional children have begun disclosing sexual abuse, approximately 60, and they have named six or more additional suspects. These children talk of strangers coming to the school and molesting them, being taken off campus and molested, being photographed nude, and some talk of animals being abused. The children talk of being hit with sticks and of being peed and pooped on. The resources of the police department and the district attorney's office were not sufficient in order to follow up on the multitude of uncharged suspects in both preschools. The task force became operational on November 5, 1984. It should be noted that the task force has two other preschools under investigation for alleged sexual abuse in addition to McMartin and Manhattan Ranch. One, the Learning Game Preschool, clearly linked to McMartin. An astounding 460 children reported being sexually abused at the three closely linked Manhattan Beach schools. Even more astounding, investigative author Michael Newton, among others, has noted that Children's Institute International determined that 80% displayed physical symptoms, including vaginal or rectal scarring, anal bleeding, painful bowel movements, and the anal wink reflex associated with violent penetration. The stories told by the victim witnesses were remarkably similar as to the nature of the abuse the locations where the abuse took place, and the perpetrators of the abuse. And these were not, as is commonly believed, only preschool children telling such stories. Some of the witnesses were former students in their teens and twenties, and their stories corroborated those of the children. The older witnesses were not allowed to testify at the McMartin trials, however, as the statute of limitations for the crimes committed against them had expired. Many of the younger witnesses were unable to offer testimony as well, for various reasons, most notably because they were too severely traumatized. Even so, as author Jan Hollingsworth has pointed out, prosecutors had at their disposal more than a hundred child witnesses as old as 11 
and a truckload of medical reports bearing documentation of scarred genitals and anuses. The stories told by these children, it should be noted, were not fed to them by some diabolical team of therapists and headline-seeking journalists. Many of them were offered spontaneously to hundreds of parents and scores of childcare specialists. And many of the victims of the McMartin Preschool, all adults now, still tell the same stories today. Anyone suggesting that the allegations in the McMartin case were true and that a massive cover-up concealed the true nature and scope of the case is likely to be labeled a conspiracy theorist. The most preposterous conspiracy theory surrounding McMartin, however, has always been the notion that some cabal of overzealous therapists was able to implant false memories of heinous abuse in the minds of nearly 500 individuals and have them persist to this day. Despite the vast number of eyewitnesses, most of them bearing physical evidence of abuse, and despite the fact that the judge who presided over more than a year of pretrial testimony ruled that the state had more than enough evidence to proceed to trial, District Attorney Ira Reiner inexplicably dropped all charges against five of the seven McMartin defendants on January 17, 1986. Six days before that, he had summarily dismissed two prosecutors on the case. At least three dozen suspects who had been independently identified by numerous witnesses were never indicted at all. One of these was a man named Robert Winkler, who was arrested in neighboring Torrance, California, and charged with running a babysitting service out of the Coco Palms Motel that authorities described as a front for a sexual abuse ring. Children in the McMartin case recognized Winkler in news footage as the man they had known as the Wolfman. The kids described Winkler as being a frequent visitor to the school, who oftentimes delivered drugs for use in abusive rituals, which were sometimes conducted in churches, a cemetery, or a crematorium. The Wolfman, conveniently enough, turned up dead on the eve of his trial, allegedly of a drug overdose. Winkler was not the only one to miss his day in court in conjunction with the McMartin case. Judy Johnson, first McMartin parent to lodge a complaint, never delivered her scheduled testimony. Her body was found sprawled naked on the floor of her home, her death said to be due to complications from her chronic alcoholism. Before her death, she was regularly derided by defense attorneys and their media allies as a deranged crank. In truth, Johnson was not known to have any mental problems or a drinking problem before learning of the unthinkable abuse her child had suffered. Considered a key prosecution witness, Johnson received frequent threats before her death and she was followed when she ventured out in public. Many of the other McMartin parents were openly skeptical of Johnson's stated cause of death. A former Hermosa Beach police officer named Paul Bynum who had been hired by the parents of victims as a private investigator, turned up dead on the eve of his scheduled testimony as well. His death by gunshot was ruled a suicide, though those close to Bynum dispute that finding. Among other things, Bynum may have testified about his examination of the tunnel excavation project conducted at the school site. This was, of course, the object of much derision by the media. 
the fact that the children repeatedly told stories of tunnels under the property by which they could be secretly transported to and from the school, and in which they were subjected to horrific abuse in a secret room, but frequently cited as proof that the children's stories were fabrications. It was universally accepted that the tunnels did not actually exist, that being the consensus view of the media and law enforcement authorities. Nevertheless, while it is true that the investigation commissioned by the district attorney's office found no evidence of tunnels, another investigation, ignored by the media, certainly did. Many of the parents were not satisfied with the superficial examination by the DA's office and commissioned another investigation of the site when the property was sold in April 1990. To lead the project, they hired E. Gary Stickle, Ph.D., a highly regarded archaeologist recommended to them by the chair of the interdisciplinary program of the archaeology department at UCLA. Stickle's resume included serving as a consultant to George Lucas on the Indiana Jones movies. Also brought on board were several other technical specialists. As Stickle wrote in his report on the excavation, by engaging a highly recommended professional archaeological team, parents hoped to bring scientific authority to whatever might be found or a definitive resolution for whatever was not to be found. And what the team found was precisely what the children for the previous seven years have been telling them they would find. The project unearthed not one, but two tunnel complexes, as well as previously unrecognized structural features which defied logical explanation. Both tunnel complexes conform to locations and functional descriptions established by children's reports. One had been described as providing undetected access to an adjacent building on the east. The other provided outside access under the west wall of the building and contained within it an enlarged cavernous artifact corresponding to children's descriptions of a secret room. Both the contour signature of the walls and the nature of recovered artifacts indicated that the tunnels had been dug by hand under the concrete slab floor after the construction of the building. Not only did the discovered features fulfill the research prequalifications as tunnels designed for human traffic, there was also no alternative or natural explanation for the presence of such features. If the stories of the children were bogus fantasies, there is no excuse for the tunnels discovered under the school. If there really were tunnels, there is no excuse for the glib dismissal of any and all of the complaints of the children and their parents. This investigation was completed before the McMartin trials concluded, and yet this devastating evidence was never presented in court by the prosecution team. The existence of this detailed report complete with photographs and maps of the tunnel complex, was known to the local and national press, but it was never reported. To this day, it was denied that any tunnels ever existed under the McMartin Preschool. The denial of the tunnels is necessary to maintain the illusion that the children were not credible witnesses, that illusion being an essential component of the cover-up. For if the children were credible, the implications run far deeper than the tunnels under the school. There are, for example, 
and stories told by the children of being pimped out as child prostitutes in private homes and businesses all over the community. They also spoke frequently of being photographed and videotaped while being abused. District Attorney Robert Filibosian publicly declared the McMartin Preschool to be an elaborate front for a massive child pornography operation. Twenty-three parents filed a civil lawsuit making the very same claim. Other stories told repeatedly by the children were even more disturbing. They told of being forced to witness and participate in the ritual torture, killing and mutilation of animals, and on occasion, of human babies and children as well. They spoke of being forced to drink the blood and eat the flesh of the slaughtered corpses, of witnessing the beheading of infants, and of being forced to stab infants themselves. They told as well of being sealed in coffins with the mutilated corpses, and they spoke of being subjected to every sort of depraved sexual activity imaginable, including necrophilia, coprophilia, and bestiality. The abuse was of such stunning brutality that it is almost beyond human comprehension that anyone could inflict such physical and psychological torture on children. And yet these stories were soon being told by thousands of other kids across the country as preschool abuse cases spread like wildfire. Young children from all walks of life and from all parts of the country were all telling remarkably similar stories of horrific ritual abuse. How was this possible? If they were all victims of false memories, how vast a conspiracy would be required for therapists all across the country to implant the very same memories in all of these children? Experts have noted that the victimized children show a level of knowledge that defies rational explanation if the kids have not experienced what they claim to have experienced. For instance, these child victims can accurately describe the look, smell, texture, and colors of human viscera. This is an ability, it has been argued, that very few adults possess, other than those who have been trained as surgeons or coroners. These children also display a remarkable level of knowledge of a wide variety of unconventional human sexual practices, including many acts that, again, most adults do not have knowledge or awareness of. If these children did not experience these things firsthand, then how did they gain such knowledge? In February 1985, Officer Sandy Gallant of the San Francisco Police Department submitted a report to her superiors noting the similarities in numerous ritual abuse cases. She had gathered evidence from fellow officers and police departments across the country and summarized the evidence referenced in the police reports submitted to her. An excerpt from her report reads as follows. The information contained herein is distasteful and bizarre to such a degree that one would choose to discredit it. However, research that I have done in this area has revealed that numerous cases of this type are surfacing around the country and in Canada. The similarities in the stories of each child victim used in these crimes tend to give credibility to the information revealed by others. Additionally, the psychiatrists and therapists who have been treating the victims state that the consistency of the stories and the explicit details revealed cause them to believe that these children are telling the truth. 
It is also the belief of each law enforcement officer who submitted information for this report that the victims are being truthful and that, in fact, children would be unable to make such stories up. During my research, similarities began surfacing which indicate the strong probability that there exists a network of people in this country involved in the sexual abuse and possible homicides of young children. These cases appear to differ from isolated cases of abuse towards children in that the crimes mentioned here have been committed with one common goal in mind, that of mutilating and murdering children for ritualistic or sacrificial purposes. Many of the cases reported also reveal the possibility of child pornography beyond the normal type of kiddie porn in that these children are photographed during rituals with some members in robes or other garb, in candles, snakes, swords, altars, and other types of ritualistic material being used. The launch requested that the report be sent on to the chief of police for him to review and then forward to the FBI. Following his review, however, the chief declined to submit the report. Gallant next tried to get the U.S. Department of Justice to review the paperwork, but she was rebuffed there as well. As for the McMartin case, there has never been any question that the children there were horrifically abused. Though rarely noted in press reports, the jurors were clearly of the opinion that that was in fact the case. The hung juries and acquittals in the various proceedings were the result of the jury members' inability to identify the perpetrators of the abuse, not the reflection of any belief that there wasn't any abuse. The jurors attributed their inability to identify the perpetrators to the inept presentation of the prosecution's case. Also rarely noted in the reporting on the trials is that the matriarch of the McMartin family, Virginia McMartin, admitted on the stand that one of her own granddaughters believed that her own children had been molested at the school. Virginia McMartin, incidentally, was more than just your run-of-the-mill preschool operator. In the mid-1960s, she achieved a sort of semi-celebrity status in the childcare field and traveled extensively as a consultant, including stops in New Zealand, Australia, Denmark, Sweden, Norway, and England. Another notable aspect of the McMartin trials is that the defense team was allowed to subject the child witnesses to the longest pretrial hearing in the nation's history. Facing a battery of as many as seven rabid defense attorneys, the already severely traumatized children were verbally assaulted for weeks on end in a deliberate attempt to break them. The state made little effort to protect these young victim witnesses. In the final analysis, the logical conclusion to be drawn from the McMartin case is that 460 kids did not all conspire to lie about the abuse they suffered. They also did not likely lie about their involvement in child prostitution and child pornography. They certainly did not lie about the tunnels under the school. They probably did not lie about their forced involvement in satanic rituals in which adults sheathed in black ceremonial robes uttered chants. In fact, at least one such robe was seized from the home of a defendant. And perhaps most tragically, there is good reason to believe 
that they did not lie about the blood sacrifices either. Today, we're forced to acknowledge a dark, abhorrent phenomenon we should never be willing to accept. A bleak version of reality, leaving us with no other option than to expose the corrupt nature of the state. It's time to elicit profound contempt by unmasking the deliberate subterfuge intended to overwhelmingly convince the ever-gullible herd marching in lockstep of a hysterical witch-hunt narrative largely caused by an irrational moral panic. What happens if we've all been brainwashed and persuaded to dismiss something as consequential as esoteric occult practices and satanic ritual abuse? A world filled with people who would rather not know, intrinsically refusing to confront the existence of evil. Mm -hmm.